When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, author Alana Nash joins Nate to talk about her book, Dolly, the Biography. Nate and Alana discuss Dolly Parton's humble origins, almost supernatural talent, and precocious drive, as well as Nashville's reaction to the book, one of the first critical biographies written about a country superstar. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Alana Nash, author of Dolly, the biography. Alana, welcome. Thanks for having me on. This is fun. Well, good. I'm looking forward to it. I've been a big Dolly Parton fan, and this book has a very unique place in Nashville history. It was the first critical biography of a country music star to be published. Well, you know, I I, I couldn't say that with, with uh, total assurance, but I do know that when it came out in 1978, people were kind of aghast uh, in some ways because uh, a lot of country music journalism was pretty much fan journalism, fan magazine journalism at the time. And uh, Nashville is supposed to be this one big happy family, even still today, I think. And I wanted to, I was just a couple of years out of journalism school and, and I wanted to write a real biography and I was, I, I loved her music and I, and I loved a lot of things about her, but she was at a critical point in her career where she was trying to expand beyond Nashville and beyond just pure country and uh, be a country pop performer and go on to do movies and whatever her imagination saw. Um, she, she just wanted to see what all she was about. And so that she, she seemed a perfect uh, person for me to choose as my, the, the subject of my first book, which meant, it was critical in the sense that it looked at both sides. And, 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 you know, I approached it as total journalism and looking at the pros and cons and her struggle and how, what her obstacles are going to be. And I think people weren't expecting that. And, and she certainly wasn't expecting it. And uh, it was it was controversial for quite a long time. And, and it impacted your relationship with her, I presume, that you never got that kind of access to her again. I didn't, but nobody else did either. Um, and she was she was kind of bewildered by it. I mean, she was she saw it as a threat. I think um, she didn't realize that. I, I mean, let's let me say it this way. I think she thought because this book had been written and there had been a previous biography about her as well. But I think she thought that meant that she could not write her own book. She didn't realize there would be room for her own book. And of course, uh, anyone would take uh, exception to that, I think. But but then she saw that, uh, of course, she could do her own book. And she actually didn't read it for years. Uh, she told Kip Kirby at, uh, at Billboard that she hadn't read it when it came out. I, I think she was kind of frightened by it. Um, but then she read it years later, and she sent word that I was a good writer, which was a lovely compliment because she's such a good writer. And um, we certainly have done interviews since then, and... and uh, 
she's been very gracious to me, uh, particularly in, in meeting my mother, who's also from Sevierville, very kind to her. But uh, I don't think anybody got the kind of access that I got after that. You know, she went to, to management in L.A. and the curtain came down, much as it did with uh, Elvis Presley after 1956. So to have uh, two or three days with her uh, for a long magazine piece that ended up uh, later turning into a book just wasn't uh, in, in, in the cards for, for anybody, I don't think, after that really pivotal time in her career. And I think that makes the book a pretty fascinating historical document, as well as the best still extant biography of Dolly Parton. There've been a couple, I think E did a true Hollywood story and there's a couple of documentaries on YouTube, but this is still uh, the source of record for her early life and the beginning of her career. And frankly, uh, I generally don't get into aesthetic criticism here, but you really covered her prime artistic years. And what happened post-1978 was her explosion into the popular consciousness as a persona and a star. And she made some great albums still after that. But but I feel like you captured her at her peak musical creative years and told her life story in a really compelling way. So now let's let's get into Dolly and her story. There's there's a metaphor in the book uh, that is one she picked out herself that she identifies with the butterfly. And you expanded on that a little bit. What is the importance of the butterfly image to Dolly and her self-perception? Well, as a, as a child, you know, she, she she looks back at herself as a child as being not very pretty at all, as being actually kind of an ugly little girl. I think she still carries this self-image, which, of course, isn't even true when you look back at these childhood photos of her. But, but as a kid in, in a very bleak part of the country, uh, and boy, I mean, I have family in Knoxville and in Sevierville, and, and when they took me to find that Tennessee Mountain Home House, I mean, that was that was way back in the in the woods and in the sticks that that even my my family lives in Sevierville had had a hard time finding. I mean, it was really remote. I mean, the Partons grew up without electricity, for example, still. So um, I think you know there wasn't much around of color. Uh, there wasn't much around of joy. You had to make your own fun. And uh, she, this this very creative, very bright uh, child uh, looked at butterflies and, and saw them as she called them fancy dressed up girls going to a party. So, you know, very, very creative. And she saw them as being colorful and bright and had no way to harm you. And they went about their business and, and bringing other people uh, pleasure. So she, she identified with it and hoping that... Uh, she would be as gentle but determined and, and uh, go about her business of making music, which would bring pleasure to others. One thing that emerges from your portrait of her is of an almost preternaturally ambitious person who realized early on that she had a gift for music and looked at the world about her and sussed out that that would be a practical approach to navigating her path through life and achieving the things she wanted to. I mean, from, from very early days, she's, she's drawn to the, the music of the church and of her family. And, and, you know, she was born, you know, of in the forties and she's younger than people like Johnny Cash or, you know, the Carter family or Jimmy Rogers. But in a lot of ways she has, she's one of the last country artists to have that old school, no electricity, water from the well, hard scrabble country lifestyle. She and Loretta Lynn, I would think, um, are two of the last. I mean, some of their contemporaries like Tammy Wynette had poor childhoods, but they had radios and electricity and, and were more engaged in the modern world. And you know that's very distant from now with 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 modern countries. So she's she's a fascinating character in that regard. But the thing that really struck out to me is her ambition and her vision at a very early age. It's really incredible that she was able to clearly see what she wanted to do in life and then go out and accomplish it. You know it really is. Uh, I was looking over the book a little bit uh, in preparation for talking with you today, Nave, and. And I've written a number of pieces about her in the years since. And, and I, this may seem like a little stretch at first, but, but hear me out here. I really, I've talked to people in the years since I wrote the book who, who lived there in Sevierville and lived in those, those back roads. And, and she was kind of uh, an exceptional child. I mean, even then people saw something almost mystical in her. 
And, and I honestly, I, there's no way to say this without saying kind of out there, but I'm just going to have to do it because I believe it. I do think she was kind of dropped into this world to be a force for good and that she was aware of this as a very tiny child that uh, while she said as the fourth of 12 children, uh, she had to find a way to, to call attention to herself. And she, at the age of five, she wrote her first song, Little, little Tiny Tasseltop which was a corn cob doll, but, but she saw that it got her attention, but, but almost immediately she, she had this drive to go, you know, to pester her uncle, to take her to Nashville, to be on the, to audition for the Grand Ole Opry or make an appearance, you know, I think by the age of 10 and then off to Lake Charles, Louisiana to cut a single of a song that she wrote. I mean, it's just this drive and is what she, what she called the magic of believing uh, drawing on the Bible from a very early age. I, I, I do think that she was and, and recognized even as a very young person that uh, she had a mission in life. She had a meaningful journey and nothing could get in that way. Uh, and that included having children, that she, she couldn't be distracted from her purpose in life. She meets a man named Cass Walker who's got a local radio show. And she shows off her talent for him and is on the radio show. And this is analogous to prior generations of country performers. I mean, going all the way up to the Everly Brothers who are on local radio when you could still just sort of walk into the station or rent some time down at the station and get on the radio. Talk a little bit about her relationship with Walker. Well, Kaz Walker was a legend in those areas. Uh, he'd been, by the time I interviewed him, he was in his late 70s, I think. But, but even in my mother's generation, he was kind of a legend in, in Knoxville and, and the uh, outlying areas. He was a discount grocer, but he was also a politician. And he had this early morning radio and later television show where he spotlighted uh, local talent. And he was really a character. I mean, he would say just about anything. And he was very country. He was very bright, but he was very homespun. And he was hilariously funny, but but had that kind of um, just that down-home way of presenting himself that uh, uh, people loved. And, of course, he had the grocery stores, and he kind of quartered the market on those those groceries around there. But he had the show, and, and he she, she became kind of a regular by about the age of 10. So people knew this this little girl with this big voice, this high pitched ethereal voice, and then uh, as she grew, uh, went on the, the television show, and it really was her calling card to uh, to later success. Uh, it inspired her to move to Nashville literally the day after she graduated from um, from high school. But um, that was a fabulous uh, platform for her to to get the experience of performing before an audience. Uh, on a regular basis and, and gave her, I think, the courage to, uh, to go to Nashville for the Grand Ole Opry and, uh, and also to uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana to, to cut her Puppy Love single. Let's go ahead and hear Puppy Love from a very young Dolly Parton. Puppy Love from a young, young Dolly Parton who's doing her best Brenda Lee impression there. She's clearly aiming for sort of a pop rock market more than a classic country. I, you know, I, I love hearing that song. It's she's so tiny and yet she's singing about such a grown up, grown up thing while while also singing about child love. And, and the, the flip side of it is a song about, you know, being done wrong. Uh you know, it's as with Brenda Lee, there was this kind of humor in seeing such a tiny person with such a big voice and, and such enthusiasm, but also singing about things they hadn't really much experienced. Uh, I don't think Dolly even had time for Puppy Love. She was too busy writing songs and, uh, and learning learning how to be Dolly. But uh, down there in Lake Charles, a guy named Eddie Schuler ran that little recording company and uh, was was very taken with her and put out a a, a promotional photo of her on there and she just looks like you know uh, there are more attractive photos of her certainly 
uh, in the family album, which became famous later. But you, you, you've got to admire the spunk of this kid. I mean, she's just, she knows she's going places. She's determined to be a star from a very, very young age. Cass Walker, before we move off of him, he's got some insights into the way Dan- Dolly handled her budding sexuality and the way she handled men uh, that she was around in in the fringes of the country music scene. I think he's the one who uses the term touch hounds to refer to some of them uh, as, you know, totally retrograde misogynistic pigs, frankly, and <laughs> describes her as able from a very young age to navigate that world brilliantly to get attention for her beauty and budding sexuality, but never inviting familiarity. She, you know, he, he points out that she would hold herself in such a way that she was untouchable and that, and that men didn't feel welcome to touch her or to start any, initiate any contact that could spiral out of control. And I, I really, again, found that to be a very telling detail of a person who's got and you brought in the superhuman aspect, and and <laughs> I, I generally try to avoid that kind of thing on the show, yeah. but I do believe in things like that. I mean, people like Dolly Parton obviously have a special place in our society and have special gifts, and it's not just their performing or creative gifts. It's their gift at navigating the world, and she seems to have had that from a very early age. A very early age, and uh, in a story that I wrote sometime after the book came out, I, I interviewed a guy named... Uh, David Wilds, whose father was uh, part of the uh, uh, Jam Up and Honey duo of Great Ole Opry stars. And he talked about uh, being on the Kaz Walker show or in the backstage area, waiting area. And when she was on there, she was in high school. And she came over to him and just began chatting him up. And he said she was just a flirting machine. But it wasn't because she was interested in him specifically, that she was just kind of testing her wings on how to present herself and, and get herself noticed. And, and she offered to sign one of her senior photos for him. She, she's still in high school. And, uh, you know, he's just flummoxed. He said she was just, you know, she never stopped talking and she just was flirty as all get out. But, but and he, he was totally embarrassed. He's just a kid himself and he didn't know how to respond to this. But, but it's a combination, I think, of humor you know, she's just bright as all get out and, and very, very witty. And she nobody can get the best of her. So it's a kind of combination of just overwhelming people with this this positive, uh, sunny personality and, and humor. And and this this kind of, you know, her her physical presence is when she's she's uh, a lot of people, you know, Alison Krauss used to just, every time she got around her, she would just ball her head off. I mean, she'd just be overwhelmed and just her re- reaction would just be to cry her eyes out just to be near her or to hear her sing and just could not compose herself. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a very, very interesting uh, response that she draws from people that, that she is both wildly artificial looking and yet very, very authentic in, in her artistic uh, presence. So it's it's it just balls you over. It just you, you just hardly know how to how to respond to it. She took off immediately upon high school graduation to Nashville, and she moved out there with her uncle Bill Owens. And for a while, they had a songwriting partnership, and you know did the day to day grind that you have to do to make it in Nashville of getting out there, getting seen, meeting the player, you know, meeting people in the song publishing business, meeting, meeting people who run clubs, meeting people who run record companies. How did that partnership with her uncle work out? And how did they mutually handle it when she eclipsed him? She did eclipse him and she eclipsed him pretty quickly, although they wrote some, some enduring songs, put it off until tomorrow as an example of that. Um, but, you know, she was very loyal with her family. And uh, she compensated him quite well financially. So uh, she didn't just kind of, kind of kick him to the curb when, when she began to eclipse him. So uh, you certainly have to uh, give her a lot of credit for that. But, but she realized that without him driving her hundreds of miles at a stretch to, to say, be on the Opry or to go down to Lake Charles and other places that she wanted to go. To, and he's the guy who, who took her little puppy love single around to uh, – uh, record stations or rather radio stations in the area and, and got them to play it and really promoted her all, all the way. She really could not have uh, achieved what she did at such a young age without him. 
So I, I think that he took it well. He realized that he was not the talent that she was. And certainly uh, Fred Foster, at Monument Records and Combine Publishing, um, knew that Bill was not anything of the talent of Dolly. But uh, I, I think he, he was not burning to be a star like she was. And so it was a, a pretty uh, amicable uh, relationship in that way. And, and he ended up working at Dollywood, and he was always part of her career. She meets a man uh, that's going to play a big role in her life. And I'm speaking of her husband, Carl Thomas Dean. She, you know, they meet very early in her tenure in Nashville and go on to forge one of the longest lasting and most unique relationships in Nashville. Yeah, you know, I was, I have to say I was lucky in that uh, when I did interview her over a course, over the course of several days at, at a house in Nashville that they were renting. Uh, because they, there was something wrong with the well water at their at their farm, but but Carl was there, and and uh, I had a couple of conversations with him, short conversations. But uh, this was at a time also when some people were saying that they weren't sure that he existed because he didn't go with her uh, to her performances or to promote herself around town. So there was this kind of a rumor that he was a made up person. So I was never really sure whether he uh, he he she kind of ceremoniously brought him into the house. He was working outside to fix the fire. And, and uh, I noticed in another story, he was brought in from outside when the reporter was there. So uh, I'm not sure if it was kind of a uh, calculated uh, thing to, to see, sh to show me, yes, here he is. And he really is a real person, but uh, he was kind of a joker, a big sense of humor. And uh, uh, I enjoyed talking with him, but uh, it's, it's, he's become kind of, kind of legendary on his own. He's become kind of legendary on his own uh, because they have this kind of mystery marriage where he he just doesn't uh, appear with her very much, uh, if at all. So uh, I, I have to say I'm very grateful to have met him and uh, talked with him and uh, find it fascinating. In the 60s and 70s, when she first became famous and became a star in the Nashville scene, Stars were allowed a certain amount of privacy that they're not they're not granted today. And her relationships with her closest female friend, who you know lived in the house and worked with her on her costumes and was a key part of her musical operations, as well as her relationship with Porter Wagner, uh, who I'm not quite ready to get to, but I want to mention this personal aspect. You know, the rumors about her and Porter had started then and go on to this day. And is there anything? I can get you to say about those relationships that you weren't able to put in the book. Well, this, I think this is why she was frightened about the book. She was, I, I think that her reaction to the book was, 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 was one of, she really wished it weren't happening because she, she didn't know what it was going to say. She was concerned about what I was going to write about her relationship with Porter. And, and it was, she calls it a love hate relationship. Um, and she has she has a pattern in her life because because she is such a passionate person. She has uh, or did I don't know about now, but certainly when I was writing this book, there was a pattern in her life of very intense close relationships uh, because she loves very strongly. And and Porter was the kind of person who also was a very strong passionate person, and he was controlling. And one of the problems that they had was that she would write her songs and he would record her songs in a, in a fashion that she didn't, uh, she didn't hear them. That's not the way she wanted them presented. So they argued a lot and she had not ever planned on staying with him seven years as part of, of that show and, and, du and the duet team. She had planned on staying maybe five years, four or five years and then moving on, but he really didn't want her to go. And he, he tried to control more and more of, of her life and her career. And of course, they were they were tied together with a publishing company and almost every way you can you can be. Uh, he was obsessed with her. And he, he was the kind of guy who, like a lot of those uh, country stars of that era, um, particularly coming out of honky tonk, the honky tonk stars, you know, they would travel on these buses or in cars before that. And they, their hours were just awful. And they take uppers and downers to keep going. And and he had a problem regulating those, and he would he would be outrageous in his behavior, and um, you know get kind of tanked up on pills and whatever else, and, and, and be uh, uh, come over at her house in the middle of the night and with a gun and 
you know, demand to be seen and heard. And she didn't want this. Um, it was really a struggle for her to get away from him. Uh, he just, he was, he just was totally obsessed. And I'm sure that he knew that by this time without her, his career was really going to suffer. I just, I, she came to his show to replace Norma Jean, which in those days, these, these shows would have, uh, traveling shows or television shows would have one female and they were, they were known as the girl singer and Dolly was the girl singer to replace Norma Jean and was not expected to, you know, be this eclipsing star. And I think Porter was really terrified to lose her both personally and professionally. So it was a tough, tough uh, extrication uh, process. And let's hear Dolly Parton's first country hit. This is called Dumb Blonde, not a song she wrote. And that was Dolly Parton doing Dumb Blonde, one of her first hits, or her first hit. And this comes right at the transition when she's been with Monument Records and Fred Foster, and he's invested quite a bit of money uh, trying to cultivate her as, as a performer and a star, uh, recording with her, encouraging her songwriting, working on her you know, press kit, et cetera, et cetera. Monument was a small label best known for its hits with Roy Orbison, and she gets this opportunity to go off with Porter Wagner, be on his TV show, tour with him, and part of that deal is going to RCA, where Chet Atkins had said she couldn't sing and he wouldn't sign her, but Porter Wagner was able to muscle that through. How did she navigate that pretty delicate situation of, of leaving Fred Foster, a guy who had really invested in her career? Well, I think Fred knew that he, he, she, she had other things happening later on. Um, he was not happy to lose her. Uh, but they maintained uh, a, a friendship. And as the years went by, when he would call on her um, to do certain things that he wanted to do, which was uh, to repackage stuff or re-release stuff or have her come and do duets with uh, certain of his uh, performers, um, sh she would do that. I mean, she's the kind of person that, um, you know, she's a businesswoman. She's a businesswoman through and through and just innately knows business. And she was able always, I think, to, to wriggle out of bonds that people would have on her, whether they were contractual or emotional, and yet somehow stay in their good graces. I think, I think even people, when people were disappointed in decisions that she made on the business level, uh, there was always something emotional that tied them to her and uh, that would just kind of smooth out those rough spots. And, that, and she, that's something she was able to do with Fred. And, and, and you know, quite frankly, he was proud uh, later on. He was certainly proud that he had given her really her, her first professional shot. Quite a feather in your cap to be the person that introduced or helped introduce Dolly Parton to the world. And it was an immediate success when she joined up with Porter. There was some resistance to her. She was a very different singer and personality than Norma Jean, the woman she was replacing. And Porter had a pretty successful show at the time. So it wasn't just a matter of stepping into the spotlight and suddenly the world parts to welcome Dolly and her greatness. Well, not everybody likes her voice, or, or at that time, not everybody liked her voice. And she, and she told me, in fact, that her her husband, Carl Dean, doesn't like her voice. And uh, that goes back to something you referenced about uh, Chet allegedly saying she can't sing. And uh, when the book came out, uh, he called me. I remember this quite well, just on a basic after regular afternoon, phone rings, and it's Chet Atkins. It was a person I didn't know and who was enormous name and um he read the book and he said you know uh, i'm just amazed that that porter told her that i had said that that we were going to try to take her kind of see how she does he, he said i i always liked her singing and uh, i think he, that he must have told her this just to strengthen himself with her but uh she always used it with for, for leverage because she would tease him uh in, in years to come about uh well, you, you took me anyway, even though you, you, you think I can't sing. 
So uh, she always knew <laughs> she always knew how to work every angle, which you know is a for a child who grew up really just I just can't tell you how backwoods you know she's says backwoods Barbie. I I really cannot emphasize to you strong enough how remote uh, their house was, their little house was back in the Smokies. Um, even as I say, even to people who live there. So this is a child who just, you know, learned out of the Bible, learned out of this kind of very, very basic schoolhouse, but, but learned on her own. Just innately, she picked up things and had gifts that would uh, navigate uh, her through life. She's, she's really quite extraordinary. And one of the things about Dolly Parton's early career with Porter Wagner is that she wasn't an immediate star. In fact, despite her gift for songwriting and which is present from the very beginning of her musical efforts her initial hit with porter was not a song she wrote it was a jimmy rogers classic and let's hear mule skinner blues blue yodel number eight Dolly Parton's version of Mule Skinner Blues, a Jimmy Rogers tune he called Blue Yodel Number 8. And to me, that's sort of the represents the upside of Porter Wagner's impact on Dolly Parton's career. This is not a song she wanted to do. This is a song he heard her doing, pushed her to do, and it was very successful for her in the country market. Well, you know, he had, uh, actually, he had really good instincts on what would work and what wouldn't work. And he's the one who kept saying to her, you know, people in uh, Chicago or Idaho don't necessarily want to hear about your daddy's working boots or mama's black kettle. You know, he pushed her to uh, once she had established herself uh, writing very, very authentically country songs. He pushed her uh, to write love songs, uh, songs that everybody could relate to. And. I think he was not that loved Tori of some of her early efforts. And uh, she, she had a lot of dead children songs. She loved <laughs> she loved writing <laughs> these songs about kids who were, you know, died or they had some kind of impairment. And of course, that's really in the old Scots-Irish uh, tradition, the child ballads uh, tradition. But he was saying, you know, we need to be a little more contemporary. We need to find something for you that, that um, can stand the test of time and, and go out beyond the region. And uh, of course, uh, her, her best example of that was the song that she wrote essentially to get away from him, which was, I Will Always Love You. One of the biggest hits of the 1990s in the hands of Whitney Houston and, and definitely the biggest uh, money earner in Dolly's catalog of songs. And she goes into that story in the Ken Burns uh, country music documentary that aired just recently within the last few months, I think this year. And yeah, that story where they've they've come to loggerheads and it's clear that she's going to move on or that she wants to move on but porter has a lot of power over her both legal and personal and she cuts the gordian knot by writing this song that expresses the most positive case of how she felt about him or at least presents it to him as a song for him and you know it's it's again a mythic i mean this is very much like Orpheus and Hades singing uh, Eurydice free. You know, this she's singing for her freedom and winning it. And there's also stories that she wrote that song the same day she wrote Jolene. Do you know if that's true? Yes, it is true. And I just love that story. Uh, she told it on a CMT showcase. She it was her first house um, uh, just outside of Nashville. And it was, she had a fireplace. And she sat down uh, for a writing session one evening, and these two songs came out of it. So you can only imagine, <laughs> wow, I mean, that's like being struck by lightning, the millions of dollars that these two songs generated. But uh, it, it also, particularly I Will Always Love You, is a song that really puts her in the pantheon of the best songwriters uh, from the beginning of time. I mean, that is a song that will live on many, many, many centuries after you and I are in the grave. 
It's just a, a classic, classic love song. She not only wanted to achieve stardom as a performer, and not just country stardom, but mass Hollywood stardom, mainstream stardom in the U.S., but she also wanted to establish herself as a songwriter. And it's it's sort of ironic that a song that she wrote in the 70s took 20 years to do that when her thinking along those lines in the 70s during her prime songwriting years was, I'd really like to place a song with Elvis. And, uh, you know, sort of a missed opportunity there on the King's part, I would say, given the kind of material he was recording in the 70s. but last thing I want to get to with Porter is for all the friction and, and, and for all that he is remembered as sort of a lesser light because he's just been outshined by Dolly Parton, the two of them together put together a really impressive body of work, not only the solo albums that he produced on her, but their duet albums. I mean, when you look back, when I at least look back at, at Dolly's career from the perspective of 2020, now that they're all in print again, thanks to the streaming services, that is really the gold. I mean, she she put out many fine songs after she left Porter, but as far as consistent quality albums and her very best work, it's all in that early late 60s, early 70s period with Wagner. It really is. And uh, a few years ago, Bear Family put all those out again on a box set, and I, and they asked me to write the booklet for it. I was a little uh, chuffed, as the English say, that they, instead of Porter and Dolly, it became Dolly and Porter. Uh, you know, I just, uh, that, that didn't sit with me very well, but of course she, she did eclipse him. But yes, in listening to all that again and, and seeing the artistry, not only in the uh, performances, but uh, in the writing, it, it, really, it, it, it really kind of surprise me that you, exactly what you say it is all right there and w one thing i'll say about you know she she does see herself as a songwriter who sings rather than as a, a, a total performer she in her heart of hearts she's a writer who sings and performs and entertains and so if you really want to wound her you say something uh, uh, that some kind of slam about her writing i mean that's where that's where she lives as a writer so, uh, but there isn't this consistency of performance uh, as she goes on, as there was under his under his direction and tutelage. A testament to how difficult it is to do multiple things at once. And what she wanted to do after she had established herself as a superstar of country music. But it's always useful to remind ourselves that the country market, especially Bef you know, especially before the mid '70s and or the '90s, you know, before the Willie and Waylon explosion of the '70s, and before the Garth Brooks explosion of the '90s that made it even bigger, country was a really small market compared to the pop market. And if you wanted to really make big money and really have a social impact, you needed to be on the Tonight Show, and you needed to be out there with Mac Davis and and performing with Donnie and Marie, or maybe not those specific people, but but you you know she wanted a mainstream audience, and that's where the mainstream audience was, and so she leaves Porter Wagner, and she signs with a pretty hot L.A. management company at the time, and Nashville was worried at how that was going to turn out for her. How do you rate that looking back now? I mean, that's kind of the central tension of the book is is. Dolly going to still be Dolly, even though she's doing the Donnie Marie show and she's being managed by the same people as Paul Lind and she's won over Johnny Carson, but that's a double-edged sword. And I don't think people now are as aware of what Don Dolly's persona was in the seventies. But I mean, I remember as a seven or eight year old, my PE coach making crude jokes about her, you know, to the second grade class. Like she was a punchline of jokes because of her buxom figure. And this was a very, you know, from our perspective now, misogynistic era, you know, Farrah Fawcett's and Charlie's Angels and these TNA posters are big and Cheryl Teague's. It was definitely a golden age of objectifying women. And Dolly managed to slip in there and take advantage of that. She had a poster that sold, you know, in the millions and was pretty outrageous considering the standards, you know, of modesty that she had adhered to as a country performer. How do you write that now, looking back on it? Was it a win for Dolly or, I mean, obviously it was. I mean, she's she's ascended to almost Godhead status, but what, what are the key points in that transition to you that made it successful for her in the long run? You ask a very big question and let's try to break that down a, a little bit. Uh, the poster you're referring to was almost a dog patch poster. I mean, she's pretty scantily clad uh, against a bale of hay, right? Yes. yes. 
and it, it actually goes kind of back to Rosalind Russell, uh, these, these kinds of cheesecake uh, photos. But when she would go on Johnny Carson, you know, she was the one who would make these these jokes about her her figure. And she was I remember when I uh, interviewed her, which was uh, that first time, which was the it was for a cover story for Country Music Magazine, which doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. But uh, when we were taking the cover shot, uh, she made a joke uh, to the photographer and to me that uh, she doesn't she didn't go jogging because she would black both her eyes. Uh, you know, in other words, her, her, her breasts were so large, they would jump up and hit her in the eye. So she would do that both to see you squirm, <laughs> but also she knew that if she could get some humor out of it, she would deflect what anybody else would say about it. So I, I think she handled this, this crossover brilliantly. She, she wanted to be more than a country singer. She wanted to be more than a singer. She wanted to be an actress. She wanted to be a producer. She wanted to do it all. She wanted to see how far she could go in every medium. And so one, uh, taking advantage of her figure and making other people squirm by making fun of it, I think was really brilliant. She, she turned the tables on everybody. Yeah, she's almost a Mae West figure that's of, right. of, of the 1970s, somebody who used her sexuality but took control of it, seized control of the narrative and kept it. And then, you know, she has, has the first big pop crossover hit with Here You Go Again, and which, which I think holds up quite well. And some of those first couple albums hold up. Uh, oddly enough, the figure I would compare her to in her post-crossover success would be Rod Stewart, who's, you know, Do You Think I'm Sexy era stuff kind of happened around the same time. And it's not the work that you know, his hardcore fans love him for with the faces and Maggie May and that stuff, but it's very popular, very occurrent in the seventies. And she had a similar ability to cross over to disco and not be damaged by it long-term. And then she makes nine to five, which is her, I believe only pop hit pop number one hit and definitely her finest movie role. Talk a little bit about that and how she managed to get accepted by Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin in kind of the Hollywood A-list for her breakthrough role. Well, I think it was Jane Fonda who saw her on a plane and struck up a conversation with her and realized that she would be perfect for this role. And But but uh, just backtracking a little bit to what you were talking about, when she began to make this, this move to expand beyond Nashville, people in Nashville were ticked. I mean, they were really angry about it. Nobody else had gone... Uh, you, you know, to Los Angeles to find a, a manager that represented people like Cher or Michael Jackson, you, you know, um, it just wasn't done. And so people thought she was a little too big for her britches at the time. And I think some people kind of hoped that she would fall on her face. But she, she kept saying, I'm not leaving Nashville, I'm taking it with me. And, and that might have s sounded kind of uh, not very sincere, but it, but it's exactly what she did. She, she never did, uh, in fact, she continued to play up her Smoky Mountain roots and uh, got a lot of leverage of, from being, again, this, this very artificial looking person who's, who's totally authentic as an artist. And people ate it up from, from all walks of life. I mean, from little kids to grannies, from, you know, the Hell's Angels to uh, Grand Ole Opry. I mean, it's everybody. And, and that's what she wanted. She wanted this large appeal to, to everyone. She wanted to be a personality uh, and part of the American fabric, which is exactly what she is. I mean, she's kind of, a, she's the Statue of Liberty. You know, I mean, she's, <laughs> she's really an American icon now. It, it, when you look at people like Linda Ronstadt and Emmy Lou Harris, with whom she made the trio records, um, those are deep and true artists, as Dolly is. But, they, but Linda and, and Emmy Lou were not ever concerned with being you know, a character. And, and that's what Dolly wanted to be. I mean, she wanted to be respected for her artistry, but she wanted to, to be a, a really big persona on, on the American and the international stage. And part of it was, as she would say, I want to do good for my people. And she certainly has done good for her people. You, go, you look at East Tennessee and it's completely transformed from when she was a child, largely through her efforts. It's so hard to pick... Uh... So the right songs with Dolly Parton. And I wanted to go with one she wrote because so far we've had three songs and none of the ones she wrote. I didn't want to go with anything obvious. So I picked my Tennessee Mountain Home, which is a song she wrote and sort of analogous to Loretta Lynn's self-mythologizing with Coal Miner's Daughter. And 
Here he is, Dolly Parton, Tennessee Mountain Home. In a straight back chair on two legs, leaned against the wall. What's the kids are playing with June bugs on strain and chase the glowing fireflies when evening shadows fall. In my Tennessee mountain home, life is as peaceful as... And that was Tennessee Mountain Home by Dolly Parton, a song she wrote uh, during the Porter Wagner years. But now let's transition a little bit. You were talking about her partnership with Emmylou Harris and Linda Ronstadt. And one thing I found really interesting was in the 70s, both of those women, Ronstadt in particular, was a pop star. You know, she was dating Governor Jerry Brown of California, had number one hit records, although they were in a country rock vein for a while. The Eagles were her backing group, or the Henley and, and Glenn Fry were her backup vocalists. And Amy Lou Harris, you know, was Graham Parsons' partner and went on to dramatically eclipse his lack of commercial success as, as a solo artist. And they were both sort of on the pop or rock side even though they were making country music. And Emmy Lou in particular crossed over to Nashville. And so it was kind of an interesting twist in Dolly's career when in the mid-80s, after you know she's had her massive success with 9 to 5, and then she's had some bumpier movies. You know, She made a movie with Sly Stallone, and she was doing duets with Kenny Rogers' Isle in the Stream. That was a big hit. But, I mean, I remember as a 10-year-old, that left a bad taste in my mouth. There was sort of this nexus of Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton, and Lionel Richie that was just – going way too pop, you know, right, and right. and it wasn't sustainable. And so the trio album that she did with, with Ronstadt and Harris was a really brilliant way of reestablishing her country credibility and maintaining herself as a pop star. It really was. And uh, some just fantastic music came out of those collaborations. There's trio and then trio two. Um, and, and it took a lot of doing. It took a lot of scheduling to get the three of them together. And uh, they had some pretty serious tips over that when she would uh, bow out to do something else that came up at, at the last minute, literally the last minute. And she and Linda especially uh, traded some pretty awful barbs in the press about this. But the music that came out of it, uh, it, it will stand, it stands the test of time. It's enduring and it, 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 it's just it's extraordinary particularly now that Linda uh, is unable to sing because of Parkinson's, which is just tragic beyond my ability to state it. Uh, but uh, I think one of the, they, they had a real difference in style there. Linda likes to, what they use Linda's uh, producer, George Massenberg. Linda likes to really take time to get everything right. Uh, she's slow in the studio, as Dolly would say. Dolly likes to hit it and go. She doesn't like to dwell on it. She likes to do like seven or nine songs in a session. Uh, that's just not the way Linda works. But you, you can't, for all their squabbles, uh, you, you, can't, uh, you can't knock what came out of those collaborations. Whitney Houston's performance of I Will Always Love You really brought Dolly into the 80s and 90s on a high note. Um, and then, you know, there's the Dolly World Amusement Park, and, and she's just gone on to become you know, an elder stateswoman of not just Nashville, but of American pop culture. The, the last time I interviewed Dolly was in 2016. It was for Southern Living Magazine at her Dream More Resort in, in Tennessee. And I was kind of just knocking around one day there, and I noticed this little display kind of out of the way. And it was a chestnut box made out of a, a special tree that had fallen. And it was a time capsule to be opened on her 100th birthday. And it contains a song, a CD of a song that she wrote called My Place in History. And I asked her about it in the interview. She's 74 now, as we're speaking in 2020, and she's thinking about these things. And she said that she also put a CD player in there with instructions because she didn't know if people would re remember how to use a CD player when she's 100 years old. And so I, I asked her where she saw her place in history. And, and she said, well, I, I, I hope that I'm remembered by a lot of good things that I might have done. She said, I'm still working on it. I, I hope it's not over yet. I, there are things that I want to do. She definitely yeah. will be remembered for doing a lot of the good things yeah. and bringing a lot of happiness to people and comfort to people in hard times. And I would also think she's prescient to 
be concerned that people won't know how to play CDs or won't have the capacity to play CDs right, <laughs> uh, right. in, 20, in 25 years. I, I often wonder, you know, Neil Young says we're living in a future historical dark age because of all our digital information is just going to vanish in a blink. So hopefully uh, he's wrong about that and people in the future will be able to enjoy the gifts of Dolly Parton for many, many years to come. So Alana, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's hard to sum up an artist as important as Dolly Parton in an hour, but I think we've come pretty close. You ask really good questions, Nate. Thank you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Come back next week when Aaron Torkelson-Weber joins Nate to talk about the various histories of the Beatles. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. A new electronic edition of Dolly the Biography will be coming out this month. Follow at Let It Rollcast on Twitter and we'll update you when it drops. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.